following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. What would you do if you were God? If you were God and you saw the world you had made out of love, the world you had formed with your own hands and looked at and called supremely good, and now you saw that same world coming apart at the seams. You could see that world made for so much goodness being filled with violence instead, fearful divisions, folks drawing boundaries where there had been none, digging into their positions, setting themselves at odds against one another, building walls between us and them. You could observe those with power giving more and more of their energy and cunning toward keeping and growing their access and resources instead of sharing with their neighbors. You could watch as folks kept using up the earth itself, the water, the soil, the sky, making it less and less livable, especially for the most vulnerable among your creatures. What would you do if you were God? Perhaps if you were one popular version of God, especially these days, God, the self-help guru, you might respond by selling folks a three or a 10-step plan for rising above the fray, for not worrying too much about the world as it is, helping folks to focus on self-improvement through prosperity instead. But if you were the God of our sacred scriptures, the God who created the world out of a desire for relationship, the God who loves and sustains the world intimately and intensely, then what you would do is enter the fray, not rise above it. You would engage with the world, with the world that's gone off the rails. You would engage at some very deep level that matches the depth of your compassion, your loving kindness, even for such destructive creatures. Anyway, that's how our scriptures imagine God responding, all the way back in Genesis. God is disturbed by our deadly ways, by our obsession and our fascination with violence. At the beginning of the story, whose end we just read, in Genesis chapter 6, we're told that God regrets making human beings and that God is heartbroken by all of our terrible violence. And so in a frenzy over love, betrayed, and broken, God opens all the spigots of heaven and earth, and, and the story traces God's grief as raging waters. In Genesis chapter 7, we read all the springs of the deep sea erupt, and the windows of the skies open. Forty days, forty nights of rain, the waters rise and spread over the earth. The waters rise higher, covering even the highest of mountains. And every creature takes its last breath. Birds, livestock, wild animals, everything swarming on the ground, and every human being, everything on dry land with life's breath in its nostrils dies, and the waters rise over the earth for 150 days. Now, so much water in this story, of course, is extraordinary, and it tends to grab our attention, but I really don't think this story is about water. I think it's about God. It's about God's deep passion for the earth and its creatures. It's about God as a loving parent in a frenzy over a child who is causing terrible harm to their self. The waters rise to match God's rising distress at the sight and the sound of this fractured creation, the same fractured creation we know around us still today with all of our absurd violence and divisions and exploitations of neighbors in the earth. 
The God of our scriptures is God who cares deeply and passionately about creation. And then in a rather jarring moment in the story, we are told that God remembers, which if you think about it, is a rather strange thing for a God to have to do. But at the beginning of Genesis chapter 8, that's what happens. God remembers God's creatures and stops this frenzy of emotion like a loving parent, remembering that this child, this object of so much passion, no matter what, still is precious and beloved. God remembers, we are told. God comes to their senses and creation is restored. God sends a wind over the earth. The springs of the deep and the windows in the sky are closed up again, holding back the rain. The waters gradually recede and dry land eventually appears. This is the effect of God remembering Because again, this story isn't about water. It's about God and God's deep affection for creation. God's agonizing pain at the harm that we cause and God's abrupt about face when God remembers God's loving kindness for their creatures. What would you do if you were God? And you saw the fear and the violence among self-divided factions? And you observed the powerful ones calling their deadliness freedom? And you watch the earth itself, the world you love, being carelessly abused. What the God of our scriptures does is to make a second effort. God remembers and God renews. At the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, we are told, in fact, four new things that God does with creation. The first is that God realizes our capacity for harm. God notices that we human beings are bent on self-centeredness that leads to self-destruction. So self-centered, we might say, that we fold in on ourselves, harming ourselves as we keep others out. And yet, even so, God promises never again to destroy every living thing. God notices our deadliness and yet responds with generosity and grace. The second is God guarantees creation's fruitfulness. As long as the earth exists, God says, seed time and harvest, cold and hot, summer and autumn, day and night will not cease. Now, to be frank, it feels like we're really testing that promise these days, and yet God says the world will continue in its rhythms. Despite our harm, the earth's goodness will be sustained. Third, God assures us that every human life shall be honored and cherished and protected. In the divine image, God made human beings, God says. And so all of our terrible cycles of violence are prohibited, no matter how we try to justify them. Every human life, every human life, it carries sacred, irrevocable worth. And these three actions, these three divine promises enact the generosity of God's second effort with us. A new realism about our violence, a guarantee of Earth's goodness, and a sacred value on every human life. This is the way of God's new creation, God's new creation, which is what Jesus announces in today's gospel from Mark. Here comes God's kingdom, he says. Here comes God's new world. Change your hearts and lives. Trust this good news. God's dream for the world is becoming a reality, and so we must change. We must adjust our lives according to God's effort with us. We must end our deadly ways. Our divisions, our hostilities, our greed, our violence, our exploitation of creation's goodness. 
all of that can stop now. In fact, we must stop all of that now because all of it is out of sync with God's second effort with us. All of it is out of alignment with God's new world. Which brings us finally then to the part of the story that we read today and the fourth new thing that God does with us. Verses 9 through 17 that we just read are one long speech from God, this divine declaration of God's readiness to relate to the world in a new and renewing way. It's a promise on God's part, notice, entirely unprompted by human beings. It is simply an act of God's amazing grace. There's no condition set on the promise, only God's resolve, God's unilateral promise to care for the wholeness of God's creation. The term God uses throughout is covenant, a word used also throughout God's story with us to describe our relationship. But notice today how broadly that covenant, that description of our relationship is applied in today's story. Here in Genesis chapter 9, that covenant, God's promise of abiding faithfulness is not with any specific family or group of people. In fact, it isn't just with people. It's with every living being, with the birds, with the large animals, with all the animals of the earth. Imagine that to the extent that you can. Imagine that God promises faithfulness in relationship with every bird, every cardinal, every robin, every chickadee, every hawk. God promises faithfulness in relationship with every animal, every squirrel, every deer, every even mosquito. God promises faithfulness in relationship with every person, from every place, from every religion and ideology and political persuasion. God promises faithfulness with the whole staggering diversity of creation, with each and with every and with all. This is God's extraordinary second effort with us. God promises never again to go into a flooding rage. The only flood from God now will be this simultaneously universal and specific, unconditional and unending flood of God's faithfulness and God's care. And in making that promise, we find another surprising characteristic of God in this surprising story. A characteristic of God we might not expect to find in God, and yet we'd certainly do well to follow in ourselves. And that is that God is self-aware. God remembers back a couple of chapters in this story to when God regretfully flooded the world with water. And now God seems to recognize they might do so again. And so God provides a means for remembering Sort of like adding a reminder to our calendars, the rainbow at the end of the rain is God's reminder stretched across the sky so it cannot be missed. When God sees it, God remembers their promises, promises about grace and sustenance and protection. In fact, twice in this story we are told that God remembers, first to stop the waters and then again to sustain the world. And the promise, the covenant, is God's deep commitment to all creation, the kind of promise that a loving parent makes to keep on loving even the most self-destructive child. To be sure, this story isn't about water. The story is about God, a God whose heart breaks at our violence and divisions, and yet who keeps on circling back to us, flooding creation again and again and again with loving kindness. And because it's a story about God, it's also about us, created as we are in God's image. 
It's a story about this world being flooded now with God's grace as the antidote to our harm. And it's an invitation for us to get on board with God's new efforts, to respond likewise amid our current world. We are flooded now with gifts of community, and so dividing ourselves is out of sync. We are flooded now with gifts of peace, and so all our violence is out of step. We are flooded now with gifts of generosity, and so our overconsumption of the earth is out of line. In today's story, as elsewhere, God doesn't demand that we stop all of our harm. God's grace never forces us into anything. Instead, it simply makes all of it out of place. God's new world is here. Now is the time, Jesus says. Now is the time to notice and to get on board. The rainbow is meant as a reminder for God, but it can be a reminder for us too. A reminder of this great ocean of God's love in which we're now living, and a reminder to change our hearts and our lives in response. That's the invitation of this whole season of Lent, this season that anticipates Easter. It's an invitation to trust the good news, and not just with our minds, but with our whole lives. To trust that God remembers, to trust that this world is being renewed with infinite goodness and love, and to trust that we can, we really can and we must, live toward that new world now. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.